Well, this is our uh, final week in this Last Place series, a, a series that we called Last Place for a few different reasons. But one of them certainly was that if you look back at the stories, especially in the first three weeks of the series, if you look back at the stories that we looked at, in every one of the stories, Jesus is kind of standing up for somebody who in the culture of his day would have kind of been considered last place in the social hierarchy of things. Right In, in the first week of this series, Jesus is standing up for women who in the culture of the first century in Israel often suffered under the patriarchal power abuse of men in, the, in this particular case who you exercise the unilateral right just to divorce their wives, to dismiss them for no reason whatsoever, and in a sense, because they did consign them to a life of abject poverty, unless they can get remarried again. In the second text, Jesus sticks up for children. In fact, he says, for such as these, he sticks up for all the little people who are small and ignored in culture, those who get brushed to the side and forgotten Jesus opens his arms and he welcomes them and he embraces them. And In the third week, Jesus sticks up for the poor. Those who are getting uh, financially crushed by the growing gap between the rich and the poor in culture. And then in every one of those weeks, Jesus invites us to become a part of championing those who are in last place by being a community and being individuals who live outside of the categories, who live without labels, who live without judgments, who who refuse to assess and assign value to people based on the categories, the boxes that we can put them in, whether you know married or single or old or young or rich or poor or healthy or sick or whatever the case Maybe he invites us to be a community that is welcoming and accepting and embracing, that is pouring our energy into inviting people into the presence of Jesus, especially those who have been small and forgotten and ignored and shoved to the side. He invites us to be those who are divesting ourselves of power and privilege, of status and standing on behalf of those in our culture and in our society who have none. Because, and this is what we looked at last week, because... God's love, God's heart is a heart of equality. God's heart is a heart that loves everybody exactly the same. Not that everybody is exactly the same, right? God recognizes the differences just as we recognize the differences between each other. Some of us are married with children, some of us are married without children, some of us are single, and some of us are uh, widowed, and some of us are divorced, and um, some of us are healthy, some of us are sick. Right? Some of us are wealthy, some of us are poor, some of us are of the ethnic majority, some of us are ethnically in the minority, some of us are gay, some of us are straight, some of us are saints, some of us are sinners. God recognizes the difference, we're kind of all saints and all sinners, but God recognizes the differences and he just doesn't care, he just loves everybody else exactly the same, which is God's heart of equality. But actually you could say that God has a heart of generosity because if you look at what we talked about last week, God actually pours out his heart the most on those who supposedly or apparently deserve it the least, on those who are forgotten and ignored and marginalized by society and culture. Those are the ones to whom God pours out extraordinary quantities of grace and love. And he invites us to be these kinds of people, which is a memo that apparently uh, the disciples missed. 
We're going to look this morning starting in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. So if you have a Bible or a, a Bible app on your device, you can turn to Matthew 20, 20. If not, uh, the verse will be on the screen. But we're going to start in verse 20 where it says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, they were called James and John, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asked a favor of him. Now i got to thank that right from the get-go, Jesus' antenna is up. Jesus is a little bit suspicious about what this is all about. See, Jesus is basically best friends with James and John. They've done everything together for the last three years of their lives. They're basically friends who live together and who work together and who do everything together. They've seen every situation together. They've been in and through every circumstance that they found themselves in together. They've gone through it together. There's nothing they haven't talked about, nothing they can't say to each other. They're as tight as can, tight can be. And yet all of a sudden, here comes mom approaching Jesus, kneeling down like uh, he's some sort of royalty or something, and saying to him, listen, I, I need you to do me a favor. Right at that moment, Jesus is like every teacher who suddenly gets an email out of the blue from an otherwise disengaged parent who's requesting a conference. You're like, okay, what is this all about? This is going to be like, you know, little Jimmy is so smart that he's bored in your class. You got to make it harder. Or, I don't think little Jimmy needs to do this project because, you know, he already understands. I don't think little Jimmy should have gotten a D on that, whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's going to be some parental intervention. He's like, at that point, Jesus is like every hockey coach who's ever been pulled aside by a parent after a practice or before a game to say, listen, you're lucky that you have Susie on your team. Susie's one of the best players on the team. She needs more ice time than what she's been getting. This is going to be one of those moments, and Jesus can feel it. So verse 21, what is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. And there it is, the request. Right, Jesus, you have to remember, or realize that at this point in time, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem with a gigantic pack of fellow pilgrims who are all pilgrimaging together to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They've all come from the Galilee province in the north where Jesus is from, and they're all traveling together to Jerusalem. And by and large, the vast majority of this crowd believes that Jesus is the Messiah, which is just the Hebrew word for king. That they're marching to Jerusalem, and they believe at some level that when they get to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to march into the city, and he's going to claim the throne of power in Jerusalem. He's going to become the rightful king over Israel. He's going to raise up a revolutionary army that's going to drive the Roman occupying forces out of Israel. He's going to take his army to Rome, overthrow the Roman Empire, and he's going to make Israel, with God's help, the de facto global superpower that is going to rule the world from the throne in Jerusalem in peace and justice and prosperity. This is what people, by and large, think is true about Jesus. And when Jesus marches on Jerusalem, and when Jesus takes his throne, this is what he has said is going to happen in Matthew 19, 28. Just a chapter earlier, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man, Jesus, sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging 
the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus says, listen, when I become king, the 12 of you, my disciples, are going to become my cabinet. And there are going to be 12 thrones, and you're going to sit on the thrones, and together we are going to uh, rule and judge God's kingdom. And now James and John's mom comes to them and says, listen, when all that goes down, what are the odds that one of my kids could sit on your left and the other of my kids could sit on your right? The left and right of the throne were the two seats of highest honor in every ancient monarchy. Uh, The seat on the right was often reserved for the king's oldest son, the one who would be the heir to the throne, who would be the second most important person in the entire kingdom. The seat on the left was reserved for the general of the king's army, the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, the one who was responsible to protect the borders of the kingdom and advise the king on military strategy. And these were the, the first and second most important governing officials in the entire country. And James and John's mums, comes to Jesus and says, listen, when you become king, what are the odds that my two boys could be the two most powerful men on the planet? You know, besides you, of course. It was an act of naked ambition, of shameless, self-serving, self-important, status-seeking, looking for significance. These guys were trying to make something of themselves. Verse 22, Jesus responds. He says, "Uh, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. That cup is an ancient Jewish metaphor for suffering. Um, sometimes it refers to blessing, but it's, it's whatever you know, gets poured out from heaven to people on earth. And sometimes that's the judgment of God. Sometimes that's the suffering of God's people. And oftentimes it involves the pain that must be endured as God does his redemptive thing in the world. In the gospel, according to Matthew, for Jesus, that cup refers to his crucifixion, his inevitable death on the cross in just six chapters Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he dies on the cross he's going to pray to his heavenly father and say "Um, if it be possible let this cup pass from me don't make me die on the cross it's exactly what Jesus had told his disciples Actually, just prior to this experience, it's exactly what Jesus had told the disciples was going to happen for the third time in the book. In in chapter 20, verse 17, it says this. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And on the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, Jesus, will be delivered over, he's going to be betrayed, to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. For the third time in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus tells the disciples that this is exactly what's going to happen. He's going to go to Jerusalem. And instead of being coronated as king, he's going to be crucified. They don't seem to have gotten the point. Because he turns to them and says... Do you, do you think you can drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they're like, oh, yeah, we can. They, they think he's being metaphorical. They think he's exaggerating. He, they think he's just saying it's going to be hard. It is going to be hard. It's going to cost me my life. Are you prepared 
to make that kind of commitment. And in fact, he goes on to say this. He says, uh, you will indeed drink from my cup. This is verse 23. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. He says, are you prepared to drink the cup? And they're like, yeah, we can. They're like kids asking for a puppy. No, we'll walk it. We will feed it. We'll take care of it. And then who's outside in the middle of February, two in the morning with the poop bag in one hand and the leash in the other? It's not the kids, right? But they're all energetic. Yeah, we can do this. And Jesus says, actually, it's more true than you know. You are going to drink from that cup. James would become the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred because of his allegiance to Jesus Christ. You can read the story in Acts chapter 12. John actually becomes the last of the disciples to die, uh, being punished because of his devotion to Jesus Christ. He dies probably in his 90s as a political prisoner in exile on the island of Patmos, which was the Roman Empire's version of Alcatraz. But Jesus says that's not how you earn the seat at the left and the right by by giving your life in that way for the kingdom. He says, my father is the one who determines who sits there. And then here's the crux of the story. Verse 24, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They were indignant. They were furious with James and John because they had heard about this conversation. Like James and John didn't do this in front of them. They pulled Jesus aside, hushed tones with mud, you know, whatever. But people find out this stuff. People talk and the other 10, they find out all about it and they're furious because they've seen this as an act of naked aggression, as kind of self-important, self-serving, status-seeking that it is. And they just know in their hearts that that's just completely inconsistent consistent with who Jesus is teaching them to be. No! <laughs> False. They're indignant because they're, they're angry. They're like, dang, I wish I had thought of that first. I didn't know you could ask. Right? I'm playing the long game. I'm just trying to quietly be faithfully obedient, answer questions when I can, trying to impress Jesus here and there, hoping that at some point he gives me a position of importance in the kingdom. I didn't realize you can get mommy to ask. Right? Because I would have, my mom walks with a walker. She's 10 times as sympathetic as their mom. I would have had that seat for sure. They're angry. They're angry precisely because they shared that same naked ambition. They shared that same self-important, self-serving, status-seeking heart of wanting to matter the most. They shared that heart attitude with James and John. And they share that hard attitude with me. And I imagine with you. Part of the whole point of this series, last place, was to talk about the ways in which we are overly interested in trying to get to first place. Trying to be the most important person in the room. That status-seeking impulse in all of us. Right? I, I wonder whether it would be possible to log for a day, whether we could be honest and authentic and conscious, woke enough to, to keep a log of all of the decisions that we make in a day that, that are partially influenced by what we think other people will think of us. My, my guess is it's most of them. Right? I, I know we hammer away at Facebook and social media, but we do it because it's true and it's real and it's not just you, it's me, it's all of us. That, that on Facebook or Instagram, on social media, you know, it's called, Facebook in particular, it's called a status because that's what you're trying to establish. 
by posting to Facebook. Someone has said the only product Facebook offers is self-promotion. Right? We post things on Facebook because we think other people will like them. Because we want other people to click the thumbs up and to affirm us. Because we think this is going to enhance our standing in other people's eyes. I do it. That's why I post things to Facebook. Because I think you all are going to like it. Right? That's what it's for. Why else would somebody else take a picture of the dinner they made and share that for themselves and share that picture with everybody else? Because you want someone to say, you're an amazing cook. Awesome. It looks beautiful. You're great. And, and to just sort of feel like you're moving up in the eyes of other people. But it's not just social media. It's every decision we make about grooming. It's about what we, what we do when we stand in front of the mirror. It's about our fashion choices. It's about why I'm wearing this hat this morning. It's about um, the house. It's about where we live. It's about what house we live in. It's about how we keep that house. It's about how we decorate that house. It's about who we invite into the house. It's about the car that we drive. All of these choices, it's about our career choices and our education choices. They're not only made to impress other people, but as we make them, we are consciously aware of what other people are going to think about our choices. It happens in the community of faith. We make decisions about attending on Sunday or in life group or volunteering at an anchor cause or in some other format in part asking the question of what would someone think if I didn't and what will someone think if I do? Will I go up or down in people's eyes as I make these choices? And by the way, these aren't like neutral choices that only affect us, right? James and John we're not making this request of Jesus in this like hermetically sealed vacuum, uh, irrespective of everybody else. In asking for seats on the right and the left of Jesus, they were taking those seats at the expense of 10 other people who could then no longer have them and who were then ranked below them. That's the point. It's never, what will people think of me? It's always, what will people think of me compared to everybody else? It's not just that I want to be successful or influential or intelligent or smart or good-looking or whatever it is. It's that I want to be successful and influential and intelligent compared to most other people. It's why we work to upgrade our friends. We want to be friends with better people, better-looking people. We want to be friends with more successful, more influential people so we can be more important by association. It's always with respect to other people that we do this nakedly ambitious, self-important, status-seeking thing with our lives. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with the heart of Jesus. In verse 25, it says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus says, listen, you know how it works in the world. He's using the word Gentiles just to mean everywhere outside of the community of faith. The way it works in general in the world. He says, you know how things work in general in the world. That there are rulers and there are high officials. Those are kind of words for the two highest layers of power and status in ancient society. People would have thought immediately about the Roman Empire and about the emperor and his cabinet and the high-ranked government officials and all the people who exist in that powerful hierarchical structure of status all the way down to the hoi polloi, you know, the proletariat, the regular people, whatever. They, they would have thought about those high-ranking officials, people who have climbed to the pinnacle of social status and standing and power and authority. And Jesus says, you know how it works with them. 
They lorded over people. They exercised authority over people. Both of those verbs come with a little prefix in Greek, kata, kata. And it means down. It's not they rule, it's that they rule over. It's not that they exercise authority, they exercise authority over. Both of the verbs are a way of saying that they use their power and status and standing as a way of providing downward pressure on everybody who exists beneath them. It's the human pecking order that exists in the playground at school, right? I'm the king of the castle, and you all are the dirty rascals. It exists around our dinner tables. It exists around our board tables at work. This power-hungry, status-seeking game of how I can establish myself as superior to others in the room in order to leverage that to my advantage. Jesus says, that's the way it works Everywhere else but here. Verse 26, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus says, out there, it's all about rulers and high officials. That, that high officials, literally in the Greek, it, it means great ones. Mega ones in Greek. Out there, it's about rulers and great ones. People who are high in the social status, standing, and power, and so on. Among us, it's about the low ones. The truly great ones are the servants and the slaves. The word servant simply means the one who takes care of things. In the ancient world, it was largely about food preparation, about buying the groceries and making the meals and preparing the dishes and setting the table and putting out the food and washing people's feet and washing their hands and getting them ready. It's the one who does the chores that make everybody else's life better. Those were the servants. The slaves were actually even lower on the social scale than the servants. The word is doulos, and the word doulos, one commentary, one scholar says, these are non-people who have no rights and no existence unto themselves, but who only exist to serve the will of their master. They're non-people whose entire existence is oriented around doing somebody else's bidding. Your wish is my command. Jesus says you want to understand greatness in the kingdom of heaven. You want to live out greatness in the community of faith. It's the great ones who are the servants and the first, the very highest, uh, highly esteemed people are the slave of, to everybody else. See, in in the kingdom of heaven, in the community of faith, the ladder is actually turned upside down. In order to get to the top, you have to climb to the bottom. And that's Jesus' challenge to us. That's what Jesus throws out there is the question of servanthood. Right? What would it look like for us to get out of bed every single morning asking ourselves the question of how we can make someone else's life better? How we could serve the people we're going to come across that day. How we could make every decision, not in terms of how uh, it impacts the way other people perceive us, but whether we can make every decision based on how we can serve other people. What would it look like to wake up every single morning and consider yourself to be your roommate or your friend's servant? To consider yourself to be your spouse's servant? To consider yourself to be your kid's Servant, not in an unhealthy way where you're saying yes to things that aren't good for them and all that, none of that. Just what would it look like to, to assume that as your role? What would it look like to go to work 
and to work as hard as you can not to make you look good, not to work for your promotion, but to make someone else look good. To work as hard as you can so that someone else can get the credit. To work as hard as you can so that someone else can succeed. What would it look like to participate in the community of faith, whether on Sundays or in other environments, not for what you can get out of it, for, but for what you can contribute to it for someone else? Right? Rather than leaving a service and saying, well, I didn't get anything out of it and that didn't do anything for me, the question is, what did you do for it? What did you do for the people around you? How did you make someone else's interaction with the community of faith, how did you make it better for them? What would it look like for us to get up in the morning to be slaves to each other? Just think about that definition. Someone with no rights. What would it look like if we lived our life not fighting for our own rights, but fighting instead in order to defend and promote the rights of other people who have none? You're a a non-entity whose existence is to serve someone else's will. What if we got up in the morning and instead of being strong-willed or self-willed, our only will was to do God's will, which is to serve someone else's will? The the definition said it's a non-person. What if instead of trying to be somebody, we decided instead to be nobody, available to anybody so we can serve everybody? That's what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Those are the ones who are first. Those are the ones who are most. Those are the greatest. Are the ones who serve the most because they're the most like Jesus. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, I want you to observe this. The Son of Man came to give his life. The Son of Man came to give his life. Remember, he's surrounded by people who think that he's showing up in Jerusalem for a coronation. The truth of the matter is that within a week or two of uttering these words, Jesus is going to be dead on a cross. He didn't show up for a coronation. He showed up for a crucifixion. And the one who was on his right and the one who was on his left weren't James and John, the two most important people in the kingdom. The ones who were on his right and his left were the ones, the thieves who were crucified on either side of him. That's what it means to be great in the kingdom, to show up to give your life. That was Jesus' destiny. That was Jesus' mission. That was Jesus' goal. Jesus came in order to die, and he died in order to benefit everybody else, right? To give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom just means payment. Usually the payment that was paid in exchange for a slave or paid in exchange for a POW, a prisoner of war, to set them free, It could be another kind of payment. It could be a fine that got paid. It could be restitution that got paid. It could be a debt that got paid. It was any payment that was made to bring restoration to a situation that was broken in order to set someone who was trapped free. That's the payment. Jesus died in order to make right everything that's wrong and to take people who are stuck and trapped and enslaved and set them free. That's why Jesus came and died. That's what being a slave and a servant looked like to Jesus. He came to give his life as a ransom so that he could set people free from the guilt and the shame that they carry from the choices they've made and the people they've been. 
And maybe that's you here this morning, that you're carrying this enormous burden of guilt and shame because of what you've done and who you've been. Jesus came to give his life in, at an, so that at an extraordinary cost to himself, he could pay the ransom to set you free from that, to allow you to experience the forgiveness of God who takes your sin away from you, as the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, who puts it at the bottom of the ocean, who wipes it from his brain and never thinks about it ever again. That's what Jesus... He came to offer you forgiveness and then to transform your life so that you become different than the person you've always been over the course of a lifetime in community. By the power of the Spirit, you become someone who radiates the presence of Jesus to the world. And you don't have to leave here this morning carrying that guilt and shame. You can be set free because that's why Jesus came. But it's not just that. Jesus came not just to break the power of sin in our spirit. Jesus came to break the power of sin in the world. Everywhere there's brokenness. Jesus died and was raised to make things right. To break the power of sin in oppression and injustice that's being experienced by those who are living under the sin of somebody else who is lording it over and exercising authority and using their power and position and status to press down on them financially, to press down on them in prejudice, to press down on this in bigotry, to press down on them in bias, to keep people marginalized and forgotten and ignored and pushed off to the side. Jesus came to break the power of that. He came to give his life in order to set people free and to make things right where they are wrong. And so the question is, who do you need, who do you know that needs to be set free? Who needs to be set free from guilt and shame? Who do you know? Who do you know that needs to be set free from the oppression and injustice that comes from the sin of the other? Who do you know who needs to be set free? And here and now, here's the second question. What does it look like for you to give some of your life to serve them as their slave, to set them free. Because Jesus gave everything. He gave everything that he had. What would it look like for you and for me to choose to sacrifice of what we have, to choose to suffer for ourselves, to die to ourselves, to die to our agenda, to die to our plans, to die to our dreams, in order that we might sacrifice our time and our money and our effort and our energy and our status, our standing, our privilege, that we might sacrifice what we have in order to see, at great personal cost to ourselves, in order to see someone else set free because guess what friends that's who Jesus is and that's what Jesus did this is how we know we're going to sing this song in a second this is how we know what love is we just look at the cross where we see the king who didn't come so that his subjects could serve him who came so that he could serve his subjects the king who came to be the ultimate servant, to be the slave to the will of God, to serve all of humanity. The king who came in order to give his life as a payment to set people free from the power of sin. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, pick up a cross and do what I did. Be done with the naked ambition and the self-importance and the status-seeking and race down to the bottom of the ladder to be the servant of all. We need all of Jesus to do that. Jesus died not just to give us an example, but to break in us the power of that self-promotion, self-importance, naked ambition, to break that power in us and to begin to remake us into the kinds of people who are willing to be a servant 
to live our lives at great cost to ourselves, to sacrifice what we have in order to live for the benefit of other people, to, to be the slave to everyone, to choose to be last. And by choosing to be last, to find ourselves being first in the eyes of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is the ugly part of my soul. One of the many ugly parts of my soul. And I suspect I'm not alone. And so we come. We come to you with hearts open, with hands open, with our spirits open, looking to be filled by your spirit, to be changed so that we can seek the upside-down greatness of the kingdom where the first is last and the last is made first, where those who used to try to be first now choose to be last, so that those who are forced to be last can be first. Would you enrapture us with a vision of what it looked like when you did that through your son Jesus on the cross? And would the power of the cross break this power of sin in us to make us the people you've created us to be? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.